All right, so we're going to continue in our what was originally going to be a four-part series and is now a three-part series because I got the flu a few weeks ago. Um, in uh, we're calling it uh, the Gospel Psalm series. And so, just to quickly recap, one of the things uh, that we've been talking a lot uh, together about is uh, what I call what we call missional living. And what what I mean by missional living is we don't want to be the kind of church together who just shows up on Sunday, listens to a nice little sermon and some music, and then we go downstairs and have some coffee and some tea, and then that's the end of it. That's not really what a church is supposed to do. That's one of the things that a church is supposed to do, and having Sunday church uh, is an important part of what we do. But the main thing that we do, and we've talked about this, is to make and grow disciples. And we really want to be the kind of people who are thinking about the entire world around us with kingdom lenses, with, with gospel lenses. But to really do that well, we have to understand the gospel. And one of the things that bugs me is kind of when we think, um, okay, we, we, the gospel is for new believers or people who are not yet believers. And then at some point, you kind of have to graduate and you have to learn the more important things of the faith. But the truth is, it's all gospel. What we learn and what we're supposed to be doing is just spending our entire lives soaking up the gospel and then spreading that gospel to the people around us. There's no level two of the Christian faith. You never move on from the gospel. And so one of the things we want to do is know the gospel really well. And like I said in the first um, uh, sermon in this series, the gospel is... Uh, this wonderful story. The gospel is not, okay, here's these uh, 11 points, like a systematic theology. Here's what you have to believe about God, and here's what you have to believe about Christ, and here's what you have to believe. I'm, you know, theology, I'm a huge theological nerd, right? I love that stuff, and it's important. But the gospel itself, as we read the scriptures, what we read is not a systematic theology. What we're reading is a story. And so what we want to be able to do is... Uh, show up on Sunday and have me stand up here with the Bible in hand talking about the gospel so often that it just becomes second nature to all of us to talk about the gospel and to understand what that gospel story is. And every text that we ever read together in the Bible, we're going to ask that question. How does this fit in to not just the book that we're reading, we're going to read Luke together next, not just how does this fit into Luke, but how does this fit in with the whole Bible? Why is this story important? that we're reading to the whole story of the Bible. And so what we want to do is really understand what I call, you know, what theologians and pastors, we call the four movements of the gospel, right? Every story has uh, different sections to that story. And um, I know, like, if you wanted to write a movie script, you would go and you'd buy a book, and it would explain the, the, the different ways to write a story arc and, you know, all that stuff. The Bible is laid out like that. And the way it works is there's four movements to the gospel. And the first movement to the gospel is what we talked about. So the four are creation, fallen, sin, redemption, and then restoration. Those are the four movements. Creation, sin, fall, uh, redemption, restoration. Um, so last, uh, last week, yeah, we talked about... Um, oh, what we're doing for this series, by the way, is we're taking those four movements of the gospel... <laughs> And we're going to talk about each of them. Originally, like I said, it was going to be four sermons, but now we have to combine restoration and redemption, that last one, into one sermon because I got the flu uh, and missed a week. Um, yeah, kudos to Terrence, by the way, for filming in for me that day. I texted him at three in the morning. Um, so anyway, we're going to do three of them. So last time what we did was we talked about uh, uh, creation, and we talked about God's glorious creation and just how 
wonderful the world that he created was. And we talked about all the animals that he created, and we talked about the way that um, the rhythms in life were created for us, and the way that God is sovereign over just even the very basic necessities like water. We talked about how important that is, and just, uh, you know, we kind of left the, the sermon with, man, let's just sit in awe and wonder in, of what God has created and just how amazing it is. And what I told you kind of at the end there was the challenge was don't, I mean, I love San Francisco and I'm a definitely a city kid, but don't just be city people, right? Spend some time in nature, walk around a park, go admire a tree. You ever thought about just how complex just one single tree is and how amazing God is for creating trees Uh, So just spend time admiring God's uh, good and perfect creation. But here's the thing. Creation is not the end of the gospel story. There's more to it, right? So there's the four movements, creation, and then the second movement is fall. Because here's the thing. Last week we left it like everything was rosy and nice and God's good creation. But the truth is, as you walk around and you observe the world, you can see, boy, things are broken. Right, let me just give you like a few recent examples. Just think about the world just from the last few, let's say the last two months, right? Um, you watch, are people getting along? Right, what do you think? No, I watched the State of the Union a few weeks ago and everybody was rolling their eyes and nobody was standing and then other people, both sides of the aisle was pointing at each other and people are ripping up speeches and like our government cannot get along on any level and we're kind of more divided. Well, I don't know more divided uh, than we've ever been. If you ever read some of the um, the the stuff that the the um, founding fathers wrote about each other, it's kind of hilarious, right? Like these guys, they were they were a lot better writers than we are today, and they really ripped each other apart on some of that stuff. But you know, just the world, our government is divided. Um, our nation, right? We have some of our people, uh, Americans, are across the world at war with terrorists, right? This is not how the world is supposed to be, fighting terrorism. Or think of the sickness that we have in the world. What's the big sickness story right now in the world, right? We have the coronavirus spreading. Um, We have things like AIDS. We have cancer, right, all over the world. Um, You turn on the news, right, Uh, and you see that people are dying in accidents. Kobe Bryant died a couple weeks ago while I was preaching, right at the end of my sermon was when he died. Uh, It was just, you know, almost 11 o'clock, I think, when he died. And you go home, and that's all over the world. Or... um, Think about just anybody kind of gotten in an argument with their spouse in the last two or three months, right? This is the person in the world that you love the most, and you can't get along with them perfectly even. Um, or for Melissa and I, one of the big places that we see how busted up the world is is we're foster parents, right? And you see this in the foster care world. You see parents. The, the whole reason we have foster care is because the world is broken. Right? So parents who are not taking care of their kids the way that they're supposed to, to the point where the government has to step in and take a kid away from a parent. And then even then, the system is really messed up and not that great uh, in the way that they take care of kids. And there's broken parts of the system all over. And so last week we said, oh, God created this world and it's so wonderful. And then this week we, we open up and we look at it and we go, well, the world kind of sucks. What happened? Right? <laughs> right? How did we get from perfect Eden, where everything was all uh, peachy, to here. Well, let's, um, uh, sorry, let me do this real fast. Let's start in uh, Genesis 3. We're going to read it, and then we're going to go, and we're going to read Psalm 38 together. All right, so let's read. This is what happened in Genesis 3. Now the serpent 
was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So all of a sudden, into this perfect creation, we're introduced this character, the serpent, the devil. And he comes up to Eve. And do you see the first thing that he says to Eve? He questions God's authority. He questions God's truthfulness. See, God, we talked about this. God created us to live in perfect harmony with him, but with him as our Lord. And so the first thing that the devil tries to do is undermine that relationship. And the woman said to the serpent, yeah, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you, you will not surely die. So right away, he just undercuts everything that God has told them. God said, there's this one tree, don't eat from this tree, because you trust me and you're going to obey me. That's the reason, right? To prove that God is the Lord, don't eat from this tree. And so for, we don't know how long it was that they obeyed this command. I tend to think it wasn't very long. I think this was pretty quick after, uh, because they were supposed to have kids uh, and fulfill and fill the earth, and they never had any kids before uh, the fall. So I think that this was kind of a short amount of time after Eve was created. Uh, I don't know how long. I mean, that's just a guess. Could have been a thousand years. I don't know. But anyway, um, so the serpent comes up and he just flat out says, "God is lying to you, right? He says you're going to die, but you're not going to die. And this is why. This is what he says: For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what he says to uh, Eve is. God is kind of keeping you down, right? You have so much more potential than this. You, you could be God for yourself. That's the temptation, is to not have him be the Lord of your life, but you, you get to be the Lord of your life. Verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, um, there's a, a guy named George Whitfield who was a traveling preacher, and he wrote a sermon, and I mean, I don't even remember the whole sermon. I just remember this one bit of it I thought was really interesting. He, he asked the question, well, how did she know that it was good for food? I think the serpent took a bite of whatever it was, and he's like, hmm, that's pretty tasty. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. You know that whole thing about, oh, Eve did this, right? It's all Eve's fault. Adam was standing there the whole time listening, not doing anything, probably drinking a beer, not paying attention. All right, verse 7. Um, then the eyes of both were opened, and then they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves, which, by the way, I don't know if you've ever seen fig leaves, but they're super scratchy and, like, thorny almost. Like, not the brightest, too, you know, these guys. Uh, so they, they sewed these fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. Literally the worst leaf you could pick to make a loin. Maybe poison ivy would be worse. But uh, they made these loincloths out of these fig leaves because they're two dummies. All right, so that's the, that's the story. That's how the world goes from the perfect creation in Eden to sort of the crappy world that we have now. This is what happened is humanity, represented by these two people, uh, fell into sin and disobeyed God and said, I do not want you to be the Lord in my life. I'm going to be the Lord in my life, and there's nothing you can do about it. Right? That's how humanity fell. And have you ever said, stupid Adam and Eve? Right? They're so dumb. Why? It's just a piece of fruit. Right? Why would you just not eat the fruit? Well, here's the thing. Um, the book of Romans kind of talks about how Adam and Eve represent us. It's called, we call it in theology, federal headship, where they represent all of humanity. And so when they fell, all of their children fell. Everybody else 
fell with them. And we call this original sin. We're all stained with this original sin. But here's the thing. I think God picked Adam and Eve because they perfectly represented humanity. The rest of us would have done the exact same thing, right? We would have fallen the same way. Um, I always thought, by the way, this is really stupid, but if anybody, anybody out there a writer, I need somebody who can actually write a book. I have a really good idea for a book. What if, <laughs> for like a fantasy book, what if, uh, I wish C.S. Lewis was alive. I think this would be a book he would love to write. Um, what if Adam and Eve had a bunch of kids and, in the garden, and then some of them sinned and some of them didn't, and there were two societies on earth, one that was perfect and one that wasn't? I think that would be a pretty dope book. I just don't know how to write a book. So if anybody wants to do that, you can take the idea, have all the money, just give me a free copy, send me a Kindle copy. All right, all right, there we go. Okay, so here's the thing. When they sinned, though, they didn't just disobey God. Here's what happened. Sin entered the world. And I want to read to you from the New City Catechism. This is what it says about sin, uh, which is uh, a catechism we're going to use a lot. We've talked about this before. Um, This is how they define sin in the New City Catechism. It says, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world that he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being... Or doing what requires what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and uh, disintegration of all of creation. Right. So what that says is not only did we fall and break ourselves when we fell, we broke the entire creation. The whole world, the whole universe, uh, fell with us. And here's the thing: we kind of tend to think of sin, right, as Okay, here's some rules, and then you broke the rules. But sin is so much deeper and more serious than that. I don't have a slide for this one, but Oswald Chambers, uh, you know, the author who wrote um, is it My Utmost Verse Highest, a little devotional that everybody reads. Uh, he said this, sin is a, a fundamental relationship. It's not wrongdoing, it's wrong being. Deliberate and emphatic independence from God. So here's the thing. He says um, that you are, are, are a sinner to the core. Sin is who we are. And because of that, everything is broken. Everything around us is broken. The the effects of sin are so widespread that we see it all over. We see helicopters crash with celebrity basketball players. We see people dying when they're not supposed to die. We see marriages falling apart. You look around the world and we have glimpses of what Eden was like and God's good creation. And we look at trees and water and we say, this is amazing. But really, when we look around the world, what we ultimately see is that creation is broken. And it happened because of our sin. And so what we're going to do is talk about sin today. And we're going to do that by reading um, Psalm 38. Uh, So first, um, before I actually get into verse 1, if you have, I I don't have this in the slides, but if you have a Bible, look at the heading of the psalm. It says, a psalm of David for the memorial offering. So David wrote this psalm. And what this psalm is about is at some point in his life, he was facing some sort of a sickness and he thought he might die from it. And what happens is as he looks at his sickness, it makes him sad because, um, because of his sin as well. His sickness reminds him of his sin. And it, we'll talk about how those two uh, play together. But here's the thing. David is a man who really understands sin. And the reason he's one of the people who really understands sin from both sides of it is because, one, he was the victim of some horrible sin. He spent a good deal of his life running around the desert, being chased by a man who was jealous of him. And this guy was trying to kill him over and over and over again. And so because of Saul, David understood what it's like to be a victim of sin. But also in his life, and we're going to talk about this more next week because we're going to read Psalm 51. David also understood what it was like to be a great sinner. Because at one point, here's the quick version of the story. He's uh, peeping across the street and he sees this naked lady taking a bath. 
He's being all perv, gets his binoculars out. So he goes and he tells his guards, hey, bring her over to me. And then she comes over, he gets her pregnant, and then he realizes, oh, she's married, and his, uh, her husband is one of my soldiers. So he invites the husband back, and that trying to cover up what he did, and it's a long story, it doesn't work out. So he has the husband murdered. Right? So this is, this is King David, the man after God's own heart. So on both sides of the coin, David knows what, it, what sin is all about, because he's been the victim of sin, and he's also been a great forgiven sinner. And so what we see here is this psalm is what we call a lament psalm. There's different kinds of psalms. But here's the thing. The Bible encourages us to lament. Um, Nowhere in the Bible are we encouraged to have a stiff upper lip and just suck it up. We don't see that anywhere in the Bible. We see people pouring out their emotions and really processing what they're feeling. But that was not my upbringing. I was not brought up in a family that talked about what was going on. Uh, That's not how it went. Um, and without being sort of overgeneralized, I think that's the same. The way that I was brought up is very similar to, I think, how a lot of Asian culture as well. I was reading about some of this this week as I was reading about pain and that sort of stuff. And I found this one lady, Louisa Tam, who said, she wrote this article about this in Chinese culture. And she said um, she doesn't remember one time growing up where her dad told her that he loved her, right? But just that sort of, you know, we don't talk a lot about emotions. But man, the Bible has, n- there's none of that to be found. This is a Near Eastern text, and these people are very emotional people. And what we're going to read is sort of a cry because of this sickness and this health that to a lot of us might seem kind of foreign in how we relate to emotions. But it's really a wonderful song. So let's take a look. Uh, verse 1. Here's what he says in verse 1, uh, 38 one. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. So... Um, the, I want to read to you again from the New City Catechism. Here he's talking about anger and wrath in verse 1. And this is what New, the New City Catechism says about this. Uh, question 18. Will God allow our disobedience and our idolatry to go unpunished? No. The answer. No. Every sin is against the sovereignty, holiness, and goodness of God and is against his righteous law. And God is righteously angry with our sins and will punish them Uh, in his just judgment, both in this life and in the life to come. So notice how when we open up Psalm, let me go back to this, uh, verse 1, look what he says. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. David is not saying, Lord, I feel like I'm being punished and I do not deserve this. That's a very Western view of sin, is we just think sin is no big deal. Right? It's, it, it's not that big of a deal. Now, imagine for a second um, that, let's, I don't know, let's pick an official, right? Let's say the mayor of San Francisco decided, I'm going to visit some churches. And she shows up to our little church. And she comes and she sits in the front row, right? And then I walk down from the pulpit and I walk up to her and spit in her face, right? <laughs> Ooh, man, people would be like, whoa, this guy just spit on the mayor. And security guards would tackle me, and we would think, wow, that's a pretty big deal. Now imagine if it was the governor or president or whatever, you know, I don't know. Just the, some big government official, right? You'd think that was pretty bad. Well, here's the thing. God is infinitely more important than any governor, mayor, city councilman, whatever, right? And every tiny little sin is basically that. It's a sin, and we'll talk about this next week in Psalm 51, but it's a sin against God Almighty, and it is spitting in his face. And one of the things that really drives me nuts is how in American, especially Western culture, we try to pretend like sin is really no big deal. When every tiny little sin is spitting in the face of God Almighty. And it's rebelling against God Almighty. And so when David is thinking about his sin, what he does not say is, Lord, I really don't deserve this. I don't know what you're doing. I'm a good guy. That's not what he says. He says, don't rebuke me 
uh, in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Do you see what he's longing for here is sort of a, a, a better relationship with God than what he has. He's asking for God um, to be like a surgeon. This church father, I'm not going to read it, but you can see that quote up there. One of the church fathers, he basically said this, is that here's the thing. Think about how a surgeon will cut you versus how a mugger will cut you. Right? You walk down Market Street, some guy pulls out a knife and says, give me your watch, and then he stabs you. That is a very different intent and probably different result than if a surgeon takes out a knife and he decides, you know what, I'm going to cut this guy. And so what David is asking for is, okay, Lord, I know that you're going to cut me, but I ask that you do it like a surgeon and not like a mugger. He's longing for that Eden relationship with God where he's a friend and not a foe. And he says, I know that I'm suffering, but I want this suffering to ultimately be for my better. Right? At the end of this, I want to be better off, which is why anybody would get surgery. Right? You go into surgery hoping that at the end of this, it'll be painful and whatever. But uh, at the end, I'll be better off. But here's the thing. The reality with David is as he's in this situation and this sin is crushing him and his sickness is crushing him. Uh, look what he says. Verse 2. For He says, your arrows have sunk into me and your hands have come down on me. So there was a Canaanite god. I wrote this down. Resh. Uh, Reshef, maybe? I don't know how to say it. Reshef? Um, anyway, he was the Canaanite god of archers. And uh, he was also the Canaanite god of disease. And so in the ancient world, when you would read about a god shooting arrows at you, everybody knew what that meant, even though we're not talking about the Canaanite god here, we're talking about the real god. It was just a way to say, this sickness that I have is coming from the gods. Right? So when you would get sick, you would say, oh, I've been shot with an arrow from the gods. It was a common kind of saying. And so we read that in the Bible, and we don't know that history, but that kind of makes sense. And so what he's saying, though, is here's who is shooting the arrows in this sentence. Right? Who's he talking to? In verse 1, he's talking to God. Don't rebuke me in your anger, blah, blah, blah. And then verse 2, for your arrows have sunk in, uh, into me, and your hand has come down on me. He's saying that this sickness that he is suffering is, has been sent by God himself. And it's absolutely crushing him is how he feels. Now, when I read that, your hand is crushing me. You know what I think of? Did anybody see that movie, The Revenant? Okay, good. Don't. Okay, so I saw this movie in theaters. It won a bunch of, you know, it was a lot of uh, Leonardo DiCaprio overacting so that he could finally win an Oscar out in the snow or whatever. Anyway, well, there's a scene. The whole movie is the, based on this first scene where this guy gets attacked by a bear. And in the scene, the bear is like messing with Leonardo DiCaprio and he's ripping him to shreds. And it's absolutely brutal. You know, like it's one of those things you walk out of the theater, you want to pour bleach in your eyes, wish you could just unsee it. Anyway, but there was part of it where the bear puts his paw, think about how big and powerful a bear is, puts his paw on Leonardo DiCaprio's character, I forget what his name was, on his, like he's a trapper in the 1800s, you know, on his head just starts to kind of crush it into the ground. And you can see in Leonardo DiCaprio's overacting face just how much this, how painful this is. Anyway, that image is burned into my brain and I wish I could forget it. That's the image that David is using here. He's like, dude, God, this sickness, in that sickness, you're crushing me like the bear was crushing Leonardo DiCaprio so that he could win an Oscar. But here's the thing. Did God really send this disease uh, to uh, David. Look at what it says in verse 3. Let's talk about this. Uh, it says, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. Okay, so let me tell you a story. It's from John 9. Um, and I think I put a link to this in the Bible app if you're following along, if you want to read that later. Read the whole thing later. But here's the story. Jesus comes across a blind man. And the disciples ask Jesus, Okay, so this guy is blind. 
Who was it that sinned to make him blind? Was it him or was it his parents? And Jesus says, neither one of them, dummies. Uh, He says, he's been blind his whole life so that I could come along and heal him. And then everybody would see the glory of God. And then Jesus spit in the mud, rubbed it in his hands, slaps the, the mud on, or, you know, he spits in the ground, makes mud with his spit, and then picks it up and slaps it on this guy's face. Such a baller move, by the way, to rub mud and spit mud on somebody's face. Anyway, and then the guy is totally healed, and then there's more to the story. But the point is, everybody in the ancient world thought, if you were sick, and you can see this in the book of Job, right, where they all thought, oh, Job, you must have done something to make God mad. That's why you're sick. Everybody thought that's how the world worked. That if you were sick, it's because the gods were punishing you. And Jesus says, no, not necessarily. Here, there was a different reason for this guy to be born blind. And so David, though, here's what he says. Jumping forward, David, or jumping back, I guess. David says, because of your indignation, because of my sin. So here's what he is saying. Yes, this sickness is a punishment from God. So sometimes it is, right? You can think of Ananias and Sapphira, who lied to the the apostles and then God said, you know, the apostles said, okay, fine, you're going to die. And then they both dropped down dead. So sometimes sickness is sent by God to discipline or uh, to help his people become the people that they need to be. Uh, but most of the time, the Bible says it's not really. So, um, right, it's not a universal principle that when you're sick, it's because God is shooting his arrows at you. Here with David, though, David is specifically saying that this sickness is a punishment from God for some great sin. We don't know the details of whatever it is that David was involved with here. Uh, but, so here in this case, he says, look, there's no soundness in my flesh, no health in my bones because of you, God. Uh, he's really sick, right? No, uh, that, those phrases are uh, pretty strong, right? There's no health in my bones. All right, verse 4, let's keep going. Uh, he talks about his guilt. He says, for my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. So again, David is being overwhelmed. He's being crushed by this sin. Um, do you know what I mean when I say that guilt can be heavy? Right? Have you ever felt really guilty about something you did that you know you weren't supposed to do? And you were thinking about it when you tried to sleep, and it just really bugged you constantly? That's what he's talking about here, is this heavy guilt. I'll tell you a story. Well, and then do you know, I guess I'll say this first, do you know the, the, the freedom that it is to have that guilt lifted from you? You know what that feels like? Um, I'll tell you this story. When I was in high school... Uh, I used to have to get to school at 7 a.m. and run the breakfast program before everybody else got to school. Um, man, my high school, my junior year was crazy. My day started at 7 a.m., and then I would go to school all day, then basketball practice, then I would work at night till about 11.30, and then I would go home and start the whole thing over. It's a miracle I survived. But anyway, so I didn't have a lot of time for entertainment in my life when I was uh, in my junior year. And so what happened was that Christmas, my brother got a little, and this sounds, this makes me sound old, but he got a little portable TV, right? You old people, you remember what a portable TV is? You know, a little handheld, you know, pull the antenna up. These kids don't know about antennas. They have iPhones now. But you pull an antenna up, you know, and you sit there and you kind of twist it and the channel goes, and then you can kind of find the channel, you know, while you're twisting the little knob. Anyway, so my brother got one of these for, for Christmas and he was really excited. You plug your headphones in or whatever. Um, so I stole it from him. And, or let's say I borrowed without permission. And I took it to school one day because I wanted to watch Dragon Ball Z at 7 a.m. while I was serving people breakfast or whatever. And, uh, yeah, Dragon Ball Z used to come on early on uh, Channel 44. Anyway, so I was watching Dragon Ball Z. Then school started, and I went and threw it in my locker. And then I came back after school to get it, and it was gone from my locker. And so what happened was 
I, I stole my brother's Christmas present, and then I lost it, basically. I, somebody took it. I never found out what happened to it. So for a couple of days, I just pretended like I didn't know what happened. And my brother was frantically looking for his TV. I was like, huh, that's so weird. You know, I don't know what could have happened to your TV. And then the guilt started weighing on me. You know, I was like 16 or 17. I think this is kind of right when I started seriously thinking about my faith, you know. So I thought, well, all right, he's just going to be so mad. He's going to beat the tar out of me. But I'm going to tell him what I did. And uh, so I went to my brother and I said, hey, here's what happened. I took your TV and blah, blah, blah. He's like, oh, okay. What do you mean, okay? He's like, you know what? It's just stuff. That's what he said to me. I thought he was going to hit me with a doorknob and a tube sock, but he was like super nice about it. And I remember that feeling of, for days, just that, that sinking feeling in my gut, you know? And all of a sudden, it's just like, whew, the weight was lifted, right? Well, here's the thing. David is nowhere near this weight being lifted. All he's feeling, he's longing for that. And he's like, I, I need to have the guilt from this lifted off of me, but so far, it's not happened. All he feels is the weight of his sin and the weight of his sickness, Verse 5, he talks about how much sin stinks. He says, my wounds, they stink and fester because of my foolishness. Okay, you know what that means, right? To have a wound stink and fester. If you don't know what that's about, if you've never seen an opened wound stink and fester, just text me your phone number and I'll send you a picture of my foot after the motorcycle accident. Uh, It was pretty nasty. And our uh, missional family with the porch, we went on a church retreat up to my mom's house at a winery in what was that September something like that anyway so we went up there in September right after my accident right after the doctor told me hey you got to stop wrapping your foot up because it'll never scab and heal so I spent the entire time walking around putting my nasty disgusting opened wound foot up on the couch for everybody to watch and see so the porch people they know what it means to look at a wound that is stinking and festering Uh, it's absolutely disgusting and what David says here is that's a picture of our sin. Our sin stinks and it festers and it kills and it's a disease. And the thing that's so sad is like what I said earlier, how people in our world just excuse away sin like it's no big deal. It's nothing, right? I just, I'll just break God's law, the creator's law, and I'll spit in his face. And what the Bible says is that sin is a disease. And he calls it here foolishness. It's foolish. It's absolutely stupid. The guy who created you has said, here's how you should live so that you can have the best life here and that so that you can step into eternity into the way that the world was supposed to be, which is what we'll talk about later. And people go, nah, I don't want to do that. I'd rather just live in my filth and my sin and my stinking, festering wounds. And so one of the things, and we'll talk about this at the end too, but it just really drives me nuts. Even pastors will get up and they'll preach without a heavy heart about sin. They just don't care. Right? Oh, I'll just excuse away sin as long as people are showing up on Sunday. And it's absolutely infuriating because what the Bible says is this. This is how the Bible describes sin. My wounds, they stink and they fester. And, and sin brings grief. He says, I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. All day long, I go about mourning. So we read the ESV, which is my favorite translation of the Bible. It's called the English Standard Version. Um, And if you ever want to know why it's my favorite, I'll sit down and I'll tell you for six hours why I love this translation. But there are other good translations, right? And one of them is the New Living Translation, which is way more sort of thought-for-thought translation, almost a paraphrase. And the New Living Translation says this. He says in verse 6, I'm bent over and I'm racked with pain. All day long, I walk around just filled with grief. So David is brokenhearted about his sin um, and his, you know, that grief that's just uncontrollable, sobbing kind of grief, like right after the Niners lost. Wow, why you got to bring that up? 
All right, just letting that, you know, that just, ah, uh, you know, why didn't you run the ball, you know? Like, okay, anyway. Um, <laughs> one of the places, I, that's a joke, but one of the places I've actually seen this grief is one of my favorite TV shows is called The First 48. Who watches this show? Anybody else? No, just me. I watch it. You guys are like, does this guy ever do anything but watch TV? <laughs> the answer is no. No, I play guitar, I watch TV, and I read. That's what I do all day, all at the same time. Anyway, my favorite, one of my favorite shows, The First 48. Does anybody watch Law & Order? That's my other favorite show. I watch Law & Order. Like, shows like crack, right? You just can't get rid of it. Okay, so First 48 is like Law & Order if it was a reality show. So they follow uh, murder detectives, uh, homicide detectives, for the first 48 hours after a homicide. Because after 48 hours, if you don't have the suspect, uh, the odds of catching him like, drop drastically. And so they kind of follow these cases. And one of the places that I've seen this sort of grief before is when those detectives, a couple hours after a murder, have to go into some lady's house and sit down and tell her your husband died. right? And then she just absolutely, usually, falls apart. I haven't seen one where she just goes, okay, thanks for coming. right? You know, People just lose it. I mean, you can imagine, right? You sit down, and here's the thing. That's kind of the attitude the Bible wants us to take about the, the way the world works and the sinfulness of the world. And most of us, when we talk about sin, we're just like, meh, you know, whatever. It's not that big of a deal. It's so opposite to what we see here uh, with David. And Anyway, he continues. He talks about how our bodies are falling apart because of the fallenness of the world. He said, for my sides are filled with burning. There's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. So his body is falling apart. Where it says there, my sides are filled with burning, is kind of a weird Hebrew word. Nobody knows exactly what sides means. Um, some translations say my tendons, are like my joints are in pain. If you know what that's like, I have crazy bad joints and stuff. And Melissa laughs at me because every night I put on arm braces and knee braces just to go to sleep because I have the, you know, like, I don't know, crazy joint pain. Uh, so that's what he's saying. My joints are in pain. I'm feeble. I have no strength. Like if you've ever had the flu, and you know the couple of days after the flu where you can't hardly move around just because you have no electrolytes in your body and you have no energy. He's saying that's what sin, like, is a picture of sin. And he's saying then also um, the sin is, uh, it's crushing me. Again, like the bear from The Revenant. Or I'll tell you another story. Like I played high school basketball, and I, I didn't like it. I was just good at it. Uh, <laughs> so I played. But I didn't, and in the middle of my senior year, I quit because I was like, I hate this so much. <laughs> But I played basketball in high school, and I remember one of the, there was one specific game. It was at the U, USF gym up here, and we played, and we were completely uh, overpowering this team. And I remember we won by more than 50 in a high school basketball of eight-minute quarters. And I remember the look on the other team's faces, right, <laughs> when I, we just kept hitting threes or whatever. You know, it was just too easy. It was like playing children, and we were men, you know, kind of a thing. And I remember the look, just the absolute hopelessness. That's what he's saying sin is like, is that look of... I was, by the way, my freshman year, we didn't win a single game, so I was on the other side of some of those 50-point losses too. But that just sort of absolutely being crushed. That's how David feels about his sin. And so he knows there's no way that he can win this battle on his own. That's what he says in verse 9. Oh Lord, all my longing is before you, my sighing. It's not hidden from you. So now he's calling out to God because as he looks at his situation, he says, I'm absolutely helpless. There's nothing here that I can do. He says, my heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. So now his, his strength is failing. Have you ever known somebody who was really strong and kind of a vibrant person, and then you didn't see them for a while until they were sick. And so you didn't see the transition from vibrant to sick. All you saw was 
you know, like this happened with uh, my grandma uh, who died, you know, when she died. I remember going and just kind of seeing her and then I didn't see her for a few months and I went and visited her. She was in a home at that point. And I went and visited her at the home. I was like, wow, this is like not even the same person, right? All of a sudden she's just, she's feeble and sick. And David says, this is where his sin has led him, right? Remember, he's a mighty warrior. He's killing Goliath. He's slaying Philistines and you know, the whole story where he cuts off a bunch of the foreskins of the Philistines, that's a disgusting story. Uh, he kills a bunch of them and then gives them to Saul, and that's the price for his bride, Michael. Anyway, uh, like, here's this guy who goes around just killing tons of people like it's nothing, and he's this, this powerful warrior. And now here he is, my wounds, they stink and fester. I have no, no flesh. Uh, my flesh is, like, feeble, and, it, you know, like, my strength is gone. David is suffering intensely, and what he's saying is, I'm suffering as a direct result of my sin. But his sin hasn't just hurt him. It's not just his body that's been hurt. Uh, his sin has also hurt uh, his other relationships. Look at this. He says, My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, uh, and my nearest kin stands far off. Right. So as if it's not bad enough to be sick and weighed down by his own sin, now all of his friends abandon him and turn on him. Now why? Why do they do this? We don't know. It doesn't really say. It could be either they're afraid to catch whatever it is that he has that's making them sick, coronavirus style, right? Or uh, they just don't want to be around him because of whatever it is that he sinned. But here's the thing, right? Nothing hurts more than the betrayal of a friend. This is why divorce is so tragic. And one of the more painful things that people can endure is because, you know, I love this person and then that relationship fell away. And you're losing that love. Um, one of my favorite bands is called Brand New. Google it. It's pretty great. And they have a song called 70 Times 7. And in that song, uh, which is a biblical reference. They're not a Christian band at all, though. Um, but, uh, and as a matter of fact, their lead singer got caught up in that whole Me Too thing. But anyway, this is one of their early songs. He's talking about this. It's 70 Times 7. Let me read you these lyrics. I don't think I have these in here. Yeah. Um, he says, Back in school, they never taught us what we needed to know. Uh, like how to deal with despair or someone breaking your heart. For 12 years, I'm listening to the song in my head, by the way. It's great, you know. Uh, For 12 years, I've held it all together, but a night like this is begging to pull me apart. I played it quiet, left you deep in conversation. I felt cool and hung out around the kitchen. And I remembered that, uh, I remember I kept thinking that I know you never would, but now I know I want to kill you like only a best friend could. So what happened was this guy's best friend cheated, on a, cheated with his wife. And then they had this conversation in the kitchen. And he was, this is how it ended up, or girlfriend or whatever it was. He says, I remember I kept thinking that I knew you never, I knew you never would, but now I want to kill you. Uh, but now I know I want to kill you like only a best friend could. What he's talking about is just how deep that betrayal is. This is not just some stranger, right? Uh, betraying him it just it's so much worse when something like this happens from a friend and that's what he's talking about here is uh, haven't you ever been hurt by somebody you loved or have you ever hurt somebody that you loved that is such deep pain and that is happening all over this broken and sinful world around us all right let's keep going Um, but he also it's not just his friends he has enemies as well he says those who seek my life lay their snares those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long so not only have now his friends betrayed him and left him and abandoned him uh, also his enemies now are circling and they're trying to get him the fact that there's a word for enemy shows how busted up the world is by the way we're not supposed to have enemies this is not the way the world is supposed to be but here's the thing. Do you know the first thing that happens after the fall? So we read the beginning of chapter 3. 
then God, and we'll read some more of chapter 3 next week actually, but God curses man, and then he curses woman, and then he curses the devil. And then the very next chapter, do you know what happens? Right? They have some kids. Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. They have some kids, Cain and Abel. And do you know how long Cain uh, hated his brother? As long as he was able. <laughs> All right, sorry. Uh, yeah, you're welcome. Feel free to use that at work with your friends and be the most popular person there. Uh, no, so the first thing that happens, right, is they have some kids, and one of them goes, you know what, I don't like that kid. Boom, hits him in the head with a rock and kills him. Or I don't know how he killed him, strangles him, whatever it is, I think. You know, kills his brother. The very first thing that we see is two brothers become enemies. We're not supposed to live in a world like this. We were not created for war. We were not created uh, to have these kind of enemies. Here's the thing, though. David is now surrounded by enemies, abandoned by his friends. And this is what he says. He says, look, I have no excuse. It's not like I don't deserve this. This is what he says. But I'm like a deaf man. I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth there are no rebukes. Uh, But for you, O Lord, do I wait. Uh, It is... Uh, sorry, it is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. He says, look, I have no defense. He, he doesn't say, Lord, why is all this happening like Job? You know I'm innocent. You know I didn't do anything to deserve this. That's not what he says. He says, look, my friends have abandoned me. I'm sick. My enemies are circling me to try to take my life. And what can I do about it? I'm going to sit here and shut up because I know, <laughs> I know I actually deserve worse than this. That's what David is saying. I have no defense here. It's not like I'm innocent. Of course he's guilty, and he knows he's guilty. And he knows that his sin is part of why the world is fallen and is in the situation that it's in. And then he continues in verse 16. He says, For I have said, Only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me uh, when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. So again, continuing his thought of I have no defense, he's like, Well, but God, if you could just kind of help me out here, I'd appreciate it. But, you know, because things are getting bad, is what he's saying. I'm at my... The end of my rope. And this is the important verse here. He says, I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. So to his credit, he doesn't blame God for what's happening. He knows that his sin is what's wrong with the world. And there's a famous story where, you know who G.K. Chesterton is? He was an author, uh, you know, I don't know, 100 years ago, a little less than 100 years ago. Anyway, from London. He's kind of like a Catholic C.S. Lewis. Um, so, uh, but he's a pretty great author. He wrote a couple books. Anyway, so one time, uh, he was a famous author at the time. The London Times once took a survey and asked the readers to write in what their answer to this question. What's wrong with the world? Write us your answers and we'll post them in the editorial stuff or whatever in the poll section. And so G.K. Chesterton, the famous author, he wrote in, uh, Dear Sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> that was his answer to what's wrong with the world. Not everybody else. Not this or that. He knew. He knew. It was a good view of sin. He says, I'm what's wrong with the world. My sin and my folly is what's wrong with the world. And it's sad, like I said, that that worldview has been lost in these days. That's not how people think of the world. Everybody thinks, well, I'm basically good and sometimes I mess up. But what the Bible says is you're not basically good. You're rotten to the core, right? You're totally depraved. Every part of you, what that means is not you're as bad as you could be, but every part of you has been stained with sin. Your relationships, the way that you love your wife or your husband, the way that you go to work, the way that you do everything. Everything that you do is stained with sin because at your very core, as a descendant of Adam and Eve, you're touched with that sin. You're stained with that sin. We call that original sin. 
And so the only time you do good is because of the grace of God who enables you to do good, both believers and unbelievers. We call that common grace. And that's the actual state of the world. And David knew it. All right, we're going to fly through these last couple verses here um, just because we're running out of time. He says, but my foes are vigorous. They're mighty. Um, There are many who hate me wrongfully. So a lot of people hate him. And he doesn't say, when he says wrongfully, he's not saying there's no reason to hate me. He's saying just the reason that they have is not really a good reason. It's just because we're enemies and it stinks. Verse 20, he says, those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. So here's the thing, right? When, when you actually do good, people who live in darkness hate the light. And that is consistently what the Bible says. Um, there's a conservative um, economics professor at Stanford. Uh, wait, do I have... No, I guess I don't know that quote here. Thomas Sowell? I don't know how to say his name. But anyway, he said this. Uh, even if you don't agree with all his politics or whatever, this is a good quote. He said, we're living in an era where sanity is controversial and insanity is just another viewpoint. And it's kind of true, right? That's kind of the world that we live in. But here's the thing. He's right in one sense. From a kingdom perspective, evil always looks at good and says, I hate that. Right? And I can't stand the light. Darkness hates the light. But here's the thing where this guy so well is wrong, is it's not new. This is not, I mean, America, this is not a new thing in the last 20 years. This is how it's always been. The world has always been backwards since the fall of man. Jesus faced it, Isaiah faced it, Moses faced it, Jeremiah faced it, Paul faced it. Uh, Our sin orients our hearts away from the things of God. And David is saying, because sometimes he actually slips through and does something well, that's one of the reasons his enemies hate him so much. And so verse 21, this is, so where is his hope, right? He says, verse 21, Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. So this is the end of the psalm. Uh, it's like Peter in the water. You know that story? Peter, he... Or Jesus is walking on water. He's just out for a stroll in the middle of the night, you know, walking across the Sea of Galilee. And Peter, they see him coming, and Peter goes, hey, I want to try that. And he jumps out on the water, and he walks to Jesus. And, now, and then his faith starts to fail, and he starts sinking into the water. And the pe- preachers, it's one of my pet peeves, right? Preachers always give him a lot of grief. Oh, his faith failed, and he sank. And I'm like, hey, preacher, when did you walk on water, right? In the history of the world, two guys have walked on water. One was Jesus, and one was Peter. But anyway, Peter's walking out there. As his faith starts to fail, uh, he starts to sink into the water. I don't know if he couldn't swim. He was a fisherman. It seemed like this dude should probably know how to swim. He's out on the water all the time, but I don't know. He's drowning, and he shouts out to Jesus, Lord, save me, or something like that. This is basically what David is praying here. I'm sinking. I, I'm done. Right? There's nothing I can do here. And unless, Lord, save me. That's my only hope. And so uh, that's how the psalm ends. It doesn't say that the Lord saves him. It doesn't say... So we're going to read about how that works next week. Today what we're going to do is we're just going to talk about sin. What I want to show you is, in less than a minute, <laughs> is because I'm way over my time here, is there are four effects of sin. Uh, we have broken communion with God. So our relationship with God now is busted, and it is not the way that it's supposed to be. The world is broken. So our sin had cosmic consequences, and the world now is falling apart. The universe is falling apart because of our sin. The third thing is our relationships are broken, just like from the brand new song, and friends, both friends and foe, right? Enemies and uh, family, all of these relationships are not the way that they're supposed to be. And then the fourth thing is our bodies are broken, and we face sickness and, and death even. Um, 
And so let's apply this then to us now. Let's bridge this to the 21st century. Uh, normally, this is where in the sermon I would stop and I would say the world is broken, but here's the good news. And I would get into what we call the Christ-centered focus of a sermon. And I would talk all about redemption. But here's the thing. That's next week's sermon. So I'm not going to get into that. We're going to leave on a cliffhanger here. But here's, here's what I want to say this week. This is one of my favorite quotes from a Puritan. His name is Thomas Watson. He said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Here's the thing. As the people of God who worship our King Jesus, we have to see the world the way that he sees the world. And you know what Jesus hates? Sin. Right? He hates what sin has done to this world. Have you ever read the story of Lazarus, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead? We know the whole story, right? He shows up. And it's the same story where Jesus sees what happened to Lazarus and he cries. But why did Jesus weep? You know, the shortest verse in the Bible there. Jesus wept. Why? Why did he weep? A couple of verses before that, it says, And Jesus knew he was going to raise him from the dead. He shows up, he cries, and then he raises him from the dead. Why? Because as Jesus was standing there, I think, you know, Jesus was a human being. He was God, but he was a human being. And in this human being was overwhelmed as he looked at the effects of sin. He had this friend, Lazarus. And he's looking, and he's looking around at all this death and this weeping and this mourning. And Jesus just goes, the world is not supposed to be like this. Look what sin has done to the world. And Jesus just tears up, and he starts crying in front of everybody. Not because of Lazarus' death, but because of death in general. And what death and sin has done to our world. And so... We, his people, have to see the world the way he does and be absolutely brokenhearted by the sin around us. Usually what we do as the people of God is we see sin in the world and we just, oh, those guys, and we get all judgy. And that's why a lot of the people in the world hate our guts. They think, oh, those judgmental, hypocritical Christians. What if, as the people of God, instead of looking out at our sinful and fallen city with eyes of judgment, what if we looked out with the same kind of broken hearts that Jesus had? These people are dying in their sin. Their sin is stinking and festering wounds. And the world around us is broken. And you know what, guys? It is not supposed to be like this. So why don't we have the same kind of broken heart for that sin as a starting point before then we talk about redemption and we go and we share the gospel? And so the good news, like I said, is that this world of broken sin, pain, sickness, and death is not the end of the gospel story. It's only movement two. There's two more movements in the gospel story coming up. And we're going to talk about those two next week as we read Psalm 51 and a couple of other parts of some other Psalm 22. Um, But today, let's just leave with that, right? With just broken hearts over the way that sin has destroyed God's good creation. Amen?